Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Warner Media EMEA Kids Chief Vanessa Brookman about the relaunch of iconic studio Hanna-Barbera and rollout of HBO Max. And renowned French documentary makers Guédion and Jules Naudet about their optimism for the genre as a result of the boom in streaming. Warner Media appointed Vanessa Brookman to the new role of head of kids for the EMEA region at the end of last year. Six months into her tenure, and prior to the surprise news of the company's $43 billion merger with Discovery, she spoke with Karolina Kaminska about the division's plans and goals, including its involvement in the relaunch of iconic studio Hanna-Barbera and the rollout of HBO Max. So Vanessa, you took up your new position as head of kids for the EMEA region at Warner Media at the end of last year. Tell us about your new role and the leadership team you have appointed. Absolutely. So I think for the first time in our EMEA history, we've now combined the networks business, so the people who look after our channels and businesses in the different individual EMEA regions with our shared central function. And that function looks after the production creation of content, both for the linear space, but also for digital. And so we've combined those two businesses together to create one whole unified kids EMEA business, which is really exciting. It's a great opportunity to work really closely together, to have one clear, you know, whole strategy that moves out across our region. It makes us more agile. And I think as our business transforms and moves so quickly now, having one team with one purpose, which is really clear and brought together by one leader, just makes us a lot more agile, a lot more swifter to make decisions and so on. So it's all really good news. Yeah, so the team has been brought together under my leadership. And then in terms of the people, I think it's quite good for the you know, the broader European, uh, Middle East and African audiences to know who to, to go to. So we have Sean Gorman, who is in charge of the UK, the MENAT and the Nordic region. We have Anna Gonzalez, who heads up our kids business from an editorial perspective in Iberia and Italy. We have Ariane Suvek, who is the editorial lead in our France and Africa region. And then I'm also about to make a hire for our Central and Eastern Europe region as well. Then we also have the kind of shared functions. So we have Sean Henry, who has been appointed in the role of um, head of content strategy and acquisitions. And he's heading up a much bigger team with a much broader remit as we look to expand and diversify our offer as we um, build up to the rollout of HBO Max in our region. We have uh, Mark Goodchild, who heads up our digital content strategy. And we have Sarah Fell, who is the head of Hanna-Barbera Studio in Europe and the go-to person for all you know, producers or people with IP or ideas. And then lastly, we have Angharad Llewellyn, who's our standards and practices. So you mentioned Hanna-Barbera there, and we learned last month that Warner Media is resurrecting that iconic brand. So can you tell us about your plans for the studio in Europe? Absolutely. So I think we're in such a hugely privileged position because, as you know, in here in the UK, we have one of the best production and creative outfits in kids animation in our region. Um, we have a really strong reputation as a group for creating award-winning high-rating, unique brand-defining content like Amazing World of Gumball and Ivan Doe and also Elliot from Earth. And so we're the ambition is to expand that to much more successfully meet the needs of our region. And we're doing that combined with the US. So we obviously, the US has incredible expertise and resource. And if you put together our amazing creative production UK business 
and you put together the US expertise and resource and legendary reputation, then what you get is really a kind of unique entity in the world of animation. And we want to really build on our existing success. And we're looking to produce new originals for our region, which will embody the spirit of Hanna-Barbera. But at the same time, we're tasked with doing stuff in our own unique way. We're currently developing the amazing world of Gumball the movie, which is based on the, you know, obviously Gumball, which is hugely successful, not just in our region, but absolutely globally. And then we're looking um, how we expand our ambitions into the preschool space and also into the long form space as well. And there's been a massive rollout of HBO Max around the world. It's not in Europe yet. And I know it's probably a little way off because of HBO's licensing deals with Sky, but eventually it will happen, I guess. So when it does, how is that going to impact Warner Media's linear channels like Cartoon Network? Um, how do you see the future of those of those linear children's networks when HBO Max rolls out? I can't really, you know, overemphasize the absolute integral need and rationale for the linear networks in our business. They're absolutely crucial to what we do. We have, you know, huge reach across our region in terms of the success of our um, linear business. So I think last quarter we reached something like 155 million people in our region. That is huge. We've continued to and we're continuing to invest in those networks. And we really definitely want to make sure that we are finding the best content to super serve our audiences in that space. So they are fundamental to our future. I think, you know, when we talk about that reach, it's so it's such an important thing to have, be able to talk so dedicatedly to that community. And I think it helps us, you know, not only not only is it important in and of themselves, our linear business, but also it helps us you know, expand and communicate our HBO Max plans. There's so many reasons that they remain a vital part of our infrastructure. And they really do remain an amazing shot window for our content. I mean, if you look at the amount of people that come to them every every month, as I say, it's an absolutely phenomenal number of children. So, you, you know, why would you not preserve that? And also we have a distinctive brand and distinctive heritage that we've built up over the last 26 years. And I feel that that is something that absolutely needs to be preserved, maintained and invested in for the future. And when HBO Max does launch in Europe, how will its kids and family offering for the EMEA region differ to Warner Media's previous output? Um, and what new opportunities could emerge for EMEA IP creators? Yeah, I think one of the things with a linear network traditionally is that you have to, you know, in the past they've been very targeted. So you've said, you know, Cartoon Network is a six to 11 audience, Boomerang is four to seven, etc. So you, you know, it's highly targeted. Obviously, we're looking to expand what our brands mean in the region. But when you're talking about HBO Max, what you really need is breadth variety you know really a big expansive range of content so that you can be all things to all kids as much as possible so we're looking to expand into genres that we haven't traditionally focused on preschool is a really big example of that we don't have a reputation for preschool at the moment but we're certainly building on that and as you may know the US are launching um, a Cartonito preschool block on the main channel sometime this year we're looking at our girl audience traditionally we've been a very boy focused network so we absolutely need to attract and um, entertain 50% of the kids population which is our girl audience and then we also definitely need to move into the spaces of live action we need to appeal to more tweens so actually I think that you know the needs of a streaming service mean that you have to be broader and mean more to more people and that's what we're working on so there's huge opportunities for producers um, and the kind of you know the creative community to do more with us than they would have ordinarily been able to do sort of six months ago and what are you looking for when it comes 
comes to local content in EMEA to complement Warner Media's US pipeline? So we are, you know, in EMEA, we continue to sort of develop and champion the European content. And it's central to our EMEA strategy because we know and we see it when we look at our viewing figures, that the importance of telling stories through those eyes of those authentic characters that are really relatable to our very diverse local audience is absolutely crucial. So we're going to continue to work with the European kids community and we're open, really, really open minded to hear about any projects that targeting kids and family audiences from preschool to tween, I guess, from comedy to factual. I think the one thing that is probably important to really mention is that we are looking for originals in the preschool space as we seek to build on our Cartonito offering in the region. And we're also looking for family content. So traditionally, Cartoon Network's probably not been known for its family offer. But as, again, we move into to Max, it's really crucial that we are devising and developing ideas and content that all of the family can sit down and enjoy together. So they're probably the key areas, really. And this year's edition of the Annecy International Animation Film Festival is coming up at this event, Warner Media usually makes a big recruitment drive for young European animation students. How is it doing this in the days of virtual events? I know, it's such a shame. I've never actually been to Annecy, so I was really excited about it. Um, and so I'm really sad that, you know, from a personal, but also from a business perspective, we'll be able to spend time with the sort of young animation talent in EMEA. But we do still, you know, heavily actively engage with them through different events and um, conferences across the region, such as Stuttgart Animation Festival, uh, Banff World Media Festival. So we're still out there speaking to people and we will be doing, we will be present at Annecy. I think in 2022, we will definitely look to do a big recruitment drive for animation students. And then I guess, you know, the other thing to say is that we have like a really talented team of creative experts and production experts within our business who are heavily involved in, you know, and very well connected when it comes to talking to students, etc. And finding those really finding those best, exciting, original voices that we can bring to to bring to our networks. And diversity and inclusivity is a huge issue around the world at the moment in all aspects of life, including TV. What is Warner Media Kids in EMEA doing in support of this movement, both on and off screen yeah I mean for us it's a total no-brainer we are deeply committed to diversity inclusion not just as a sort of moral imperative well that's probably the overriding one but also from a business point of view too I think I can safely say that Cartoon Network is probably one of the most diverse kids brands in the market you know I think we've always had a reputation for being a very welcoming open place for all sorts of diverse perspectives points of view creative ethos and outlook and that will always continue we absolutely we've you know built our reputation over the years on making sure that through our shows like Amazing World of Gumball, Lost Even Universe etc you know that we are diverse, open, inclusive, and everybody is welcome. Um, and that we're a place, you know, I think the US sort of have a culture committee called Hello Weirdos. And it's this idea that everybody's welcome, everybody's point of view and perspective is relevant. And I think so we, you know, it's, it's inherent in our DNA, I suppose. But as a business, you know, we're making sure that we hold ourselves to task and that we everybody in our company is accountable through a performance management process and that we are making sure we collectively and individually perform in the area of diversity and inclusion through that sort of performance management process really and there's more to come I mean we have individual campaigns across our region so for example in Italy we have something called Io sono diverso which is I am means I am diverse 
And then we have things like our CN Buddy Network campaign, which is, you know, around being a buddy, not a bully, which looks to, again, you know, make sure that kids feel empowered, sort of raises awareness around bullying and empowers kids to take action. So these are all the sorts of things that we do to try and make our business and our brand and our programs and our content feel like everybody is welcome, however strange or weird or crazy they feel like their individual perspective is really. So we've touched on on quite a few different topics there. Um, But as we progress through the rest of this year, what are your main sort of aims and, and core goals that you're you're going to be focusing on? Yeah, so I think, you know, for me, it's fun. You know, we're doing, as you can imagine, a huge amount of work on HBO Max and how we expand our offering to meet a broader audience. So for me, that's absolutely central and key to my ambition for the year, as is the expansion of Panda Barbera Studios to make sure that we're kind of properly resourced. We've got the right strategy, creative talent, creative ambition so that we are continuing out, you know, to build on our reputation for really unique award-winning content, particularly in that preschool and family space and long form. So they're they're my ambitions, really. I think, you know, making sure Max is the must-have family offer across our region and then also ensuring that Hanna-Barbera Studios, that we're developing and producing the the content for which we built our reputation, really. And also there's a culture piece as well. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a, we are a brand new team and we're working, we're learning how to work together in this sort of, you know, very, virtual and sort of strange reality that's become you know pretty normal to us so it's about how we continue to do that and build a team but also how we you know start to go maybe back to the office and start to see people and what that looks like so there's a lot to work on from a sort of creative perspective um, but also from a culture perspective I would say. Vanessa Brookman speaking with Carolina Kaminska. Renowned New York-based French documentary makers Gédéon and Jules Naudet broke into the industry in 2001, when they happened to be shadowing the city's fire department on routine business as two hijacked planes struck the Twin Towers. Their latest film, Notre Dame, Our Lady of Paris, aired recently, around the second anniversary of the devastating fire that tore through the famous French cathedral. They spoke to Clive Whittingham about their optimism for the documentary genre with the boom in streaming, making up for wider economic problems and absence of cinematic releases, and how their celebrated 9-11 debut would have been different in an era of smartphones. My brother and I so are, are from France, from Paris originally, but um, came uh, as teenagers in the uh, kind of in the suitcase of our parents and, uh, and arrived in New York in 1989. And um, after going to university, uh, uh, NYU for film and television, our first project, it was a, a very unlikely one. We were, I guess, like every young uh, boy fascinated with fire trucks and um, pushed that fascination a little bit further is where we, the first documentary, we decided to, we convinced the fire department of New York to allow us to film for nine months the probationary period of a young firefighter who just graduated from the fire academy. And the idea was to be able to follow him through these nine months where he's learning how to be become from a, a boy to a man in one of the toughest jobs in the toughest city in the world. And, you know, after three months of, of spending, uh, you know, almost uh, four days a week in, uh, uh, and four nights uh, sleeping in the firehouse, going to false calls, uh, you know, but not, still not catching a fire, uh, we were concerned that we would have a fantastic cooking show, but absolutely no fire for a documentary on firefighters, when unfortunately 
unfortunately, one morning, which was September 11, uh, I was in the uh, in the streets filming uh, for an odor of gas in the in a street corner. Shadion was back at the firehouse and uh, filmed, um, heard a, a loud roar, and suddenly looked up, tilted my camera, and filmed the first plane crashing into the North Tower. And from then, that day that started like any other became anything but. And so our first documentary became uh, the the uh, the 9/11, which was the response of uh, of a firehouse in, in New York City to uh, to to one of the worst terrorist attacks ever from inside the World Trade Center. That uh, footage is um, is it's obviously one of the the iconic pieces of footage from that from that awful day. It's the uh, one of only two people that managed to film the, the first plane going into the towers. Is it uh, difficult to 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 top that in a career? Is it? Be- have you struggled um, to, to break out of? Uh, well, you don't want to top that. You for that. The first thing uh, I think also, you know, it's you know we're we're incredibly. It, it's a strange project that one because you know we're incredibly grateful because we survived and when a lot of people people didn't. Uh, Jadon and I both and our partner James Henlon, who was a firefighter who helped us uh, do this project. You know, we we all survived where so many uh, of our friends did not. And so not only were we able to 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 be spared, we were able to 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 put a spotlight on these incredible uh, firefighters, and that was really what it became important for us to do. And at the same time, was the opening of our career. So it's a very weird mix of emotion of you know uh, our name and our career starts with that terrible tragedy. So it's it's complicated. Proud of it. Proud of being able to to show uh, what firefighters uh, do every day, and that's you know part of a long love story with them wherever they are. I think we've always uh, connected. Um, they were groupies of firefighters. You know, they they we owe we owe them a debt that we'll uh, never be able to repay. Fortunately, so so that started strangely enough our career. That improbable moment on a beautiful uh, sunny Tuesday morning. It's another fire that uh, has basically brought us together to to talk about documentaries today. Notre Dame, Our Lady of Paris, is your most recent project that that people will know about. Why don't you tell us a, a little bit about the project and how you got involved to begin with? I, we were we were in New York actually uh, when when uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame uh, was burning in Paris and uh, basically we were like right now on a computer screen uh, watching live like the rest of the world and it was very surprising it, it was shocking to see um, the, the cathedral from her own natal uh, town where we grew up but it was very surprising to receive all those phone calls and texts from uh, friends and people here in the city in New York people who've never been to Paris people who've never been uh, to France uh, visited the cathedral but somehow felt connected to this uh, beautiful monument uh, whether it was for religion uh, re- uh, reason or for the uh, architecture the, the, the beauty the the, the, the history well, whatever it was they felt a connection and we were so surprised to have a neighbors knock on the door almost crying say oh I'm so sorry this is terrible and we, we were trying to understand why it was such a shock for everyone and and I think it took us a bit of time but we realized that uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame is is among those monuments in the world like uh, the Eiffel Tower like uh, the Statue of Liberty like the Egyptian pyramids who are not supposed to disappear uh, they're supposed to stay forever I mean it's they like, somehow are grounded in our history and we feel good that they are here to stay but when suddenly one of those monuments is being destroyed in front of our eyes it feels like uh, the ground uh, below our feet is uh, is disappearing and then there is nothing sacred or there is nothing that can hold 
the wisdom, uh, withhold uh, the test of time, and so so then every every, every catastrophe is possible, and uh, so so I, th- I think this is really what uh, why it became such a trauma on, on a kind of a universal collective consciousness, just to see something that was not supposed to be destroyed being burning in front of our eyes. Obviously, the 9/11 project, you were there, and this one, like you say, you were in New York. So how did you go about putting this together with the the footage and and everything that we'll see in the documentary? Well, it's you know we've. Um working already in Paris was was easier because of our previous documentary which was the our Netflix series on the attack of uh, the November 13th attacks and so we had already links and and friendship with the uh, fire department with the police department with su- certain officials in Paris and so that's why when it when it happened um, I remember um, sending um, texts to some of our friends who are firefighters in Paris who were telling us okay either we're about to go or we're uh, we're staying in the in the firehouse, and then in the following days we reach out to the uh, to the leadership that we knew very well, and to one to say we were all in awe of the incredible job they did of saving Notre Dame, and they're the ones who started telling us, you know, there is some incredible stories and of courage, of, of humor, and all this, and started thinking about it, and said, but you know, why not make a documentary and show like we always do? I think that's the one thing all of our programs have in in common is we always try to we use these difficult stories. But at a moment, what fascinates us is the moment where you see the worst, you see the best. And it's this very human stories of courage of ordinary people doing extraordinary things that as always, uh, as a part of us yearn to tell these stories, to inspire people by by showing that at a moment where the world might be horrible, might be, you know, not, uh, it might, might be a difficult place to live and where news is not all good. When you see these beacons of, of humanity, uh, which are represented by these firefighters, by these civilians, by people who are who team t- together, with you see in Paris, whether it was the people clapping for the firefighters or singing or all that, it's these moments of, of where life takes over and, and and teaches us a lesson that we always try to show. So to do a documentary, even when we were not there, I think the key for this is one to have an incredible team behind us, especially the ones finding the um, the footage and the images, and that takes a, a lot of time of you know having uh, uh, team members uh, going knocking at doors. At, um, uh, in the four block radius of, of Notre Dame to find every single piece of uh, footage that was filmed. It's finding great uh, images from the police department, the f- fire department. But the key is really the interviews and, the, and to tell the stories. And for this, it's all a question of trust, getting to know these people, trusting that they can trust us. You know, trust is earned, it's not given. And so for them to get to a point where we, you see these incredibly candid interviews, where you see these firefighters who are, you know, kind of let their guards down and talk naturally if they would of, you know, saying, no, 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 I don't want to go down. Even if my officer said, get out. No, 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 I need to finish. We need to save it. Or, it was very candid to, to, to see how they would talk normally and, and kind of let go of that barrier that sometimes they have. And all this is taking the time to to talk to people, to know them and, and to try to extract that beautiful story that they have in, inside of us. They're people stories, not documentaries, literally documenting disasters. It's, it's no. I, I read in one review of the, the Notre Dame project today about the the interview
interview with the I'm trying to I'm, I'll get the word wrong I'm sure but the minister or the reverend or the, the senior right okay there, there we go who, <laughs> someone's get, basically seemed on verge of collapse himself as well as well as a, which it was a lovely line that I wish I'd come up with my myself but that that's what you're trying to bring out of these situations not here's a fire here's a terrorist no, attack or, and or that's why we've never you know our documentaries are never investigations are never they're never journalistic because we're not journalists I think we're documentary filmmakers which allow us to have maybe not some bias but to have some preferences and to be able to not have the the, the constraints of being just neutral and factual we can get more into the, the human condition there and what's going on and especially to tell a, a true human story and a story which has to be also uh, enjoyable to watch and that's uh, reality stranger than fiction who would have thought that you know uh, until you, you you hear the story of trying to find the, the right crown and they come out with the fake one and, and then you can find the keys and they forget the, uh, the the combination you would put that in a movie you say come on that's too big you know this would never happen but stranger uh, reality is much stranger and funnier than fiction so you know these moments are the ones that make it a, a real human story that's you know chronological it's true that our work has a lot of time been comparable to kind of a disaster movie you know where you have the beginning of the day you can it's kind of you know you get to learn your character and then these incredible events are happening but it's a bit like this because life is like this how was 2020 as documentary makers have you just been sitting around ready to to go out for your, for your next project what's the situation for for you guys it was a bit tough at the beginning because we were finishing editing uh not the documentary on notre dame and that was in march when we all got into confinement we all had to uh run home uh lock doors and continue editing on our computers with the entire team respectively from their homes and it was a good thing that our uh, supervising editor had basically prepared us uh, weeks before and so we were we were ready you know we we, we knew that uh, from one day to another we could move home and continue the editing but it was not that simple I mean we discovered Zoom we were exchanging notes but uh, we were trying to, uh, to watch uh, you know uh, all together it was and then we had to do all the entire dubbing uh, with it's actors. Color correction on on computers which have not the same brightness is a recipe for disaster. We've learned that. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, I, you know, j- just asking actors to come into a studio in uh, in April and in May was a, a huge no-no. It's, uh, so how do we do the dubbing? And it was one headache after another. But uh, finally, we, we finished in July, August. No, the one thing I think we, we missed the most, but that's, uh, I guess it's most people like, like us who work on documentaries we missed that uh, camaraderie you know to all be together to have you know uh, we have a we have a small team but we have lunch every day we, we exchange ideas we talk about each other's lives and all that so it's making a documentary we were always liken it to kind of a summer camp it's a very long summer camp for some time but you know where you spent every uh, every weekday together every uh, every lunch together every coffee break etc so I, I missed that part personally the um, we were fortunately towards the end of the editing so uh, we were not completely robbed of this but and if not it's just reading a lot and uh, looking at new uh, new ideas for documentaries and uh, knowing that filming anything during the pandemic is complicated so 
fortunately, we were right in between two projects, but you, you have to occupy your time. Obviously, COVID has brought challenges such that there's no cinemas. You can't do a cinematic release for a, for a documentary at the moment. In theory, there's a big economic problem coming on the back of a, of a pandemic around the world. And for those of us that travel to documentary conferences, much of the talk is often about how you get your project off the ground and funded anyway, even in good times. Where do you see that getting projects funded for both big and small independent filmmakers on the back of uh, on the back of this pandemic? Well, I think if, if the pandemic has done one thing is the opening up of all of the streaming platforms. And here I'll talk about the US because that's where we, 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 we work. So that's what we know. But to see how the Netflix and the Amazon and the HBO Max and all that has really invested quite a lot in documentary series in particular. We all remember the success of uh, Tiger King, you know, to talk about a pandemic uh, improbable story. But at the same time, it really showed that there is, uh, and because documentaries have evolved, and I think the uh, the serialization of it, the series, the, the, the limited series of documentaries, enables to tell a, a true story. And just like a great book or a great fiction series, you want to, you're caught up into wanting to, to see the next episode and after the next episode and the next episode. We're at the same entertainment value now in great documentaries as a blockbuster series on Netflix or Amazon or Disney Plus, I think. And that's what opened that. I think there were so much things to watch and so much time for people to it that people rediscovered documentaries. We've seen different, I think, iteration of that. When we were at, uh, at, at university in the 90s, most of the time, documentaries were in uh, theatrical release, but not very big ones. It was not, except for the very, very big ones, of course. But then we saw HBO started doing a lot of great uh, documentaries, PBS also. And here I'm talking just the, the US part. And then with Netflix started to, to, to come all these series and now even more than before. So I think we're at the third iteration of the success of documentary filmmaking, but I think it's never been that successful as it is now and hopefully for the future. Netflix have certainly shown that there is a, a huge audience for documentary, which I think those of us that love documentary always knew anyway, even if the linear broadcasters perhaps didn't. Is it not perhaps true or are they not perhaps guilty? You know, Netflix will go to Sundance and, and pay $10 million for a big project with a big name attached, but that mm-hmm. doesn't really help independent filmmakers lower down or is it is it is there a broader impact than simply well, Netflix going and paying that for knock down the house or something like that? Well, the good thing is that there is also the, the networks now um, uh, who are opening their online platform. And in fact, every every single uh, channel is opening a, a web platform Form. And so that means almost double the need and the thirst for content. So hopefully, maybe we were too uh, optimistic, but uh, there is a, there is a, a quest, a thirst for for content that is so high today that uh, anybody would find their, um, their, their their calling or their, their style. And there is so much more possibilities. Also, we we see nowadays for uh, emerging filmmakers. You know, it, it's incredible when you think if you have an iPhone, you are one person production team you can film you can record sound you can do animation you can edit it's incredible and so with these uh, level of uh, uh, of technical to, to to record things you can do great things and without having uh, needing an incredible budget it's yes it's always complicated to be recognized or to to do it but it's much easier now than it is before because you can put it on twitter you can put it on facebook you can put it on youtube and someone will find it and say oh that's a great idea these people have an eye and we always hear that, you know, then they'll be picked up by, you know, uh, an Amazon or something else. But I think there's so many different platforms now. I think just saying Netflix, Amazon or HBOs, I think 
it's old fashioned of us, but I think it's much more than, than that now. That it's um, the it, the the future is there is no ceiling to that to that future for documentary filmmaking. Yeah. So a, a new genre, it's a, it's a, basically it's a, it's a selfie documentary kind of, if you want to call it like that. It's uh, people turning their, as Jules said, their their, their uh, cell phone toward themselves, recording their daily life, recording their trips, recording anything, and and they become <laughs> some of them uh, instant uh, world success. It's 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 uh, fascinating. Uh, others have their own small following, and for a few, they have enough heat or people watching them that uh, they gather money from advertisers to continue their work. Uh, this is also very exciting. Yeah, there's plenty of new new ways that uh, I, I think the, the documentary world has never been so open and uh, and full of opportunities at any level of where you are on your, on your career. 9-11, coming back to the start of the interview, would be remembered very differently and there would be vast amounts more footage if it happened in the iPhone. There were, like I said, there were only two people, you and one other, that filmed that first plane. That absolutely would not be the case now. There no. would be literally... And, and from the inside, I would, I, would, I would not be the only one with a camera inside the World Trade Center. I think 9-11 is in a way kind of the last least documented uh, moment of history. Imagine it now, you would have videos from the people in the plane before they crashed. You would have videos of people live above the, the fire floors in the World Trade Center. You would have uh, you know, firefighters taking images. You'll have images from everywhere, every single. But that's why technology changed. Now it just found that you know, we were the only ones inside at uh, you know, 8.45 in the morning with a camera running in the middle of the streets. So, you know, it's uh, happenstance uh, is, is there. But now everyone is a, is a journalist. Everyone is a cameraman. Everyone is a sound recordist. Everyone. So that's what we said. It's it's really on documenting the world. So I think on the profession of journalism and of documentary filmmaking, it's uh, and filmmaking in general, it has been revolutionized by that little thing that we all carry in our pocket. <laughs> Does that mean when you are putting these days, when you're putting together a Notre Dame project, you're almost spoiled for choice for the content that you, you include and don't include. But it's always, there is much more uh, videos to, to be had, much more footage, it's true. And especially as before, we would have pushed for more professional footage. Now with these phones you, you, and, and the talent of people, you see, you know, amateur footage, which is incredibly well uh, shot. So what's next for you guys? Can you tell me? So we're very superstitious. And so, you know, too much time spent in a firehouse. Uh, no, but so we have a couple of projects, but we're, they're not signed yet. So we can discuss. We know we want to, uh, we're doing them again with Propagate because that's kind of a, it's a long friendship story. You know, there's people that we're, we're, we're very faithful uh, to. And Ben Silverman, which we've known ever since we've done 9-11, he, uh, he was our agent, actually. He was our first agent we ever had, actually, because we were, uh, you know, unknown uh, little uh, filmmakers before. And so we've been with him. We've known Ben for all these years and he's become a personal friend and we know each other very well and our families knows each other. And so every chance we, we get to, to work together, we, we try. You know, it's that uh, kind of a little summer camp that we have. You all, as you get older, you, you realize you just want to work with people you really enjoy working with. And so, you know, recreating that kind of little family for every project for us starts with having a, a stable uh, partner. And uh, so Ben is always kind of the, at the crux of all that. Gedeon and Jules Naudet speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. 
Thanks for listening. 